if you come in and you see somebody walking normally, uh, talking normally, moving all their extremities normally, you have performed pretty much a very good neurologic exam. You cannot make a diagnosis of musculoskeletal anything unless on physical exam you found some musculo or skeletal. Hey, Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, and our special guest this month, Mike Weinstock. Mike, it's uh, great to have you with us. Greg, hello. Uh, nice to see you all. Yeah, uh, Rick, it's just uh, great to see you guys, Southern California. You realize here in Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, last week we had four more inches of snow. So uh, don't tell me about how, how life is tough in Southern California. No, I'm not complaining. Uh, yeah. Mike, you're, you're in a new location of sorts. That's right. I, I, I didn't move, but after 21 years at Mount Carmel St. Anne's and the community hospital last four and a half years being the chairman there, which is more of a political type appointment, I have switched and now I am the associate program director here at the Adena Emergency Medicine Residency in Chillicothe, Ohio. So really focusing on teaching, research, CME programs. And uh, I've been here a month and it's been absolutely awesome so far. Yeah. And for those, those of you who thought that Chilacate was just above Juarez, uh, it's not. It's in Ohio, right? Right, Mike? You're <laughs> exactly. somewhere, somewhere near the uh, scarlet and gray haze there. Well, this well, was the old head, the old capital of Ohio, Chillicothe, before it moved to Columbus. So uh, I'm in a historic region. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, as you know, uh, Mike is the uh, senior editor and founder of the Bounce, uh, Bounce Back series. Uh, now they're into their uh, ninth uh, ninth version of that. I think every permutation <laughs> of anything that can go wrong with you is being covered uh, in that series. Uh, Mike's got a couple of uh, new versions coming out. That uh, Mike, you want to tell us a little bit about what's uh, in the pipeline? Yes, yeah, so um, we have the classic original, the medical, legal, and the pediatric, but the newest one that we're actually in the process of writing now is Bounce Back's Critical Care, and that's with Scott Weingart and Kevin Clower and Greg Henry, hey. and what, we, <laughs> what we're doing here is they're all bounce back cases, but we're really focusing on the return visit and trying to put the reader in the footsteps of the emergency physician as they go through a critical care resuscitation and stopping at different decision points, seeing what the literature says, seeing what the actual provider decided to do. And we've got just a, a awesome group of authors, and I, I, I'm so excited about this book. Terrific. Uh, when's uh, the EDC? Well, yes, EDC. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> nine months, actually. <laughs> yeah. So it will it will not be seventeen. I think it'll be probably the beginning of two thousand eighteen. But that's okay. We're going to take our time, and we're going to do it right. And um, we have section editors, and then of course the the book authors and the chapter authors. And um, boy, it's it, it's really exciting. And I'm looking forward to how much I'm going to learn in the process of doing it too. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm sure your fans are uh, of all the. All the folks who have gotten the, this growing series of uh, books on their shelves are looking forward to that. Hey, listen, you've got a couple of cases for us, and we're going to do them in the Weinstock uh, style. We're going to go through it in some detail. We're going to listen to what people had to say. Uh, we're going to look at the histories, the physicals, and, and get into where these doctors screwed up. Yeah, yeah, I like to do that with, like, <laughs> yeah, Rick, Rick just gave away the, the, the end of the cases, Greg. Yeah, yeah, yes, I understand that. And, and understand this, because there's a legal action, 
does not mean that somebody screwed up. Um, I'm going to throw my two cents worth in on some of these cases too. And I think that, um, I, I, I think that we don't want to be too harsh here on some of our colleagues. Right. It's always easier in hindsight, isn't it? But oh, I like having, oh, you know. You know. <laughs> yeah. It, it, wait a second. In hindsight, I'm the best doctor I know <laughs> when I have the answer. I'm just killer at these things. Yes. You know, it's, um, it's, it's uh, nice to be able to take that case and then we'll look at all the different branch points of it. And so uh, um, there's, as I've even just sort of prepared to, to do this here for, for today, just thought about all the different discussion points that there are with these cases. Well, should we begin? Lead Let's us, begin. So case one, I'll give a little title to the case. The title is, It's All in Your Head. So <laughs> I, I, as we all know that the, the eye does not see what the mind does not know and bizarre findings, sometimes these bizarre neurologic findings, sometimes, I'm not saying I've ever done this before, but maybe I have, maybe I haven't, but have attributed them to anxiety. And uh, you know, the question is always, are your symptoms from anxiety or are you anxious because of your symptoms? Of course, having a heart attack is a very anxiety-provoking type of situation. So four questions to explore with this first one. Um, first of all, is the resolution of neurologic symptoms reassuring? Uh, number two, how do we differentiate between organic illness and anxiety? And give some pretty specific recommendations and approaches to that. Uh, third, when we hear hoofbeats, when do we start thinking about zebras? And then finally, a, a issue I know close to Greg's heart, what, cons what constitutes adequate documentation of informed refusal? Ooh. So before we even do the case, uh, what do you guys think? Like this sort of anxiety thing, this is what kills us uh, time and time again through our careers. You know, I, I'll just say this. Throughout my career, I less and less started to attribute anything to a psych or an anxiety cause. When I first started, I think I knew what that was. Now I'm totally convinced I have no idea what it is. And so even if I think that the probability is, I don't make that the diagnosis. I guess I'm just so gun shy of putting down a psych diagnosis from the emergency department. You know what? We see these people for a very brief period of time. And I think that, uh, that, that it's the bold pilot who decides that this is uh, anxiety at this moment in time without really having a background on a lot of these patients. Just be careful writing that down. Hey, listen, Mike, I think you've made an excellent point. I was going to do the same thing. That's why I think it was a great point, is that there's got to be something wrong with you if you're in the emergency department and don't have certain level of anxiety. And sure, if you're there for a sprained ankle, well, it's probably not uh, very high. But if you're there because you can't breathe, you can't, you've got uh, uh, chest pain, uh, is doctor, is it cancer, the, the, the litany is very long, whether in fact it is the primary diagnosis is another matter. But I, I think that anxiety is a routine part of being a patient in the emergency department and teasing out that part uh, from what is the underlying medical problem is often a bit of a challenge. And it's, not, it's no embarrassment to an emergency doc not to make the correct 
psych slash anxiety diagnosis moment one. Um, it's perfectly, very few people die from those things. So it's okay to let's say somebody tags that after they've had eight visits and they've seen five or six people, and now you're starting to broaden the net as to what this might be. But in the emergency department, if you're signing somebody out, I always remember two EMTs bringing a guy in uh, from a park bench. They had a paper bag on his face because they said he was suffering hyperventilation syndrome. What they didn't also mention was, until we kind of got into it, that the guy had dropped a lung shooting up, <laughs> and he had a perfectly good reason uh, not to be breathing well. And, uh, you know, actually, for people who are hypoxic, paper bags don't do you a lot of good. So I, I think we all went through a phase when we did this kind of stuff and fortunately, most of us grew out of it before we killed too many people. But here's the thing that I always struggle with, with my own practice, is that balance of over-testing a patient who is anxious compared to under-testing a patient who has true organic illness. And I want to be an appropriate steward of you know healthcare resources and the patient's time and, and money. But on the other hand, I, I side exactly on the same side that you do, Greg, with I probably do a little bit more because I don't ever want to have that patient come back with some real organic problem and have anxiety under my diagnosis. Yeah, I don't want to get this uh, totally broken record, uh, but the bottom line is real history and real physical are still what does it. I, I had a neighbor of mine, big time lawyer, Stanford Law School, you know, Harvard, this and that. Uh, who went to our local um, urgent care center because of the swelling in his leg. They did probably 500 tests of some kind. Uh, and they decided, well, he must have an infection. He had no fever. The skin, there was no redness. There was no nothing. There was nothing that looked like cellulitis. How in the world did they make the diagnosis that he had a bacterial infection? It's like, I have no idea. But I kind of took one look at him and had another view of what was going on. And I didn't have any laboratory studies, but I actually talked to him about what happened. And it's like, nobody does this anymore. And in this first case, I got a lot of things to say about the way the history was taken. Well, that's well, the first yeah, case then. Yeah, why yeah. don't we dig in? Yeah, digging in here. I'm going to first give you just briefly the patient's story so we can get a little perspective of him. I, I like doing that with these because this is a real person and um, he uh, had this real problem like any of our relatives or friends could, could have. So this guy's name, uh, Steve Heller, 46-year-old man, lives in a rural community and drives 90 minutes each way to the mill where he works as a skilled heavy laborer. He is married and has two children. So while driving home one while driving home from work one warm end of the summer evening. Uh, By the he way, develops... he has enough time to drive home and listen to Risk Management Monthly. I know. So we should so this, give that This guy. is important. <laughs> Go ahead. From, the, from scratch, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> Start at episode one. Okay. So uh, while driving home in the evening, he develops some neck pain. Both his hands feel a little uncoordinated and shaky, and he 
feels unsafe to drive, pulls over and dials 911. And while waiting for the medics to arrive, he also calls his wife. So she gets the call from her husband, Steve. This is Lauren is her name. And uh, he is scared on the phone. She can hear that sort of fear in his voice and uh, this anxiousness. And she gets the car, kids in the car, takes them to her mom's house. She drives to the hospital, but on her way, she gets another call and he calls from the back of the squad and he says simply, quote, I think I'm dying. At 9.02 p.m., the paramedics arrive with Steve at the emergency department. So let me give you the exact ED record. I'm going to just give you the history that was recorded, and then we'll summarize all the, all the rest of it. So chief complaint is severe left neck pain, blurred vision, lost coordination of both upper extremities. Uh, the nurse makes a note, which is pretty similar and summarizes what I've already told you. So the history is done pretty quickly within about 30 minutes of his arrival. That's when it's recorded. So probably was seen pretty quickly. It was an EMS patient. So they say here, quote, 46-year-old male brought him by ambulance after a frightening episode while driving home from work. He's never had a similar episode. He was fine earlier in the day. He was driving home and he felt a hot, sharp pain in the left side of his neck. He got shaky, felt frightened and uncoordinated. Then pulled to the side of the road, called 911, and was transported to the hospital. His symptoms improved during the ride. Now he feels normal. No pain or weakness, but he did have some diaphoresis when he was in the car. His past history is essentially negative. He's a smoker. He has some vital signs, showing some minimal elevation in his blood pressure. His physical exam shows that his neck was supple, non-tender, no cervical lymphadenopathy, full range of motion, no JVD. So pretty extensive neck evaluation. And then his neurologic exam Symmetrical motor and normal sensation, cranial nerves 3 to 12 with the normal limits, gait normal. So as far as his emergency department course, about 9.45, so 45 minutes after he arrives, his wife arrives. Uh, they summarized that he got an EKG, which was normal, chest x-ray is normal, and they did a CAT scan of his head, which was read by a radiologist as being normal. They did some labs, including a CBC, basic metabolic, troponin. They all come back normal. So I'm just going to give you now the progress note and what they diagnosed as, and then we can have a discussion on this. So at midnight, this is again about three hours after he gets there, all this tests were, these tests were done. They say, quote, patient ambulatory without signs or symptoms of CVA or cardiac disease. Patient prefers to go home and follow up with his doctor. They diagnosed neck pain of undetermined etiology, suspect musculoskeletal, number two, stress-related anxiety reaction, and number three, situational stress at work. And they asked him to follow up with the PCP in two to three days. Greg, I know you probably are just at a loss here, have no idea, no opinions on this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> sitting here, and my fingernails are embedded un under the countertop because... Uh, there's so much of this which is inadequate. First of all, you cannot make a diagnosis of musculoskeletal anything unless on physical exam you found some musculo or skeletal. Yes. I mean, what I really want you to do is uh, I had a young guy pulling a boat trailer uh, and he got chest pain. And they diagnosed him as musculoskeletal chest pain pulling a boat trailer up a hill. And yet there was no examination where when he moved his arm, when they pushed on his chest, where they did anything. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm so old that what they taught me was wrong. 
But most things in the muscular skeletal system is a positive diagnosis. You find it by examining people. And I don't know how you can say that. Musculoskeletal neck pain of undetermined etiology until you at least establish that it exists. Now, again, maybe I'm just old and crotchety, but that would drive me nuts. So that's right. Let's let's stay focused on that history and physical exam aspect of this evaluation because I always think of three things that I want to have there when I'm thinking musculoskeletal. I want to have a mechanism. In other words, the guy turned his head fast or whatever, you know, <laughs> saw a chiropractor or something. A subjective confirmation, like when I turn my neck, it hurts. And three, some objective findings, like you're saying, something on the exam. Now, if you have all of them, it doesn't for <clears throat> sure explain it. And you have none. It doesn't definitely 100% rule it out. But this guy had none. I mean, Rick, you know, in the history and the physical, I mean, it's just really hard to support this diagnosis with this data that we have obtained. You know, the idea also that he's talking about unilateral neck pain, that something happened all of a sudden kind of thing. It's like, well, what could possibly that have been? What, what, have you ever seen anything like that musculoskeletal in your entire life? However, on the other side of the coin, you see people who come in with back pain and they feel compelled to establish an etiology. Well, it must have been when I was working in the yard yesterday. There wasn't any specific incident, but I, I was working in the yard, so that probably would cause my back pain. And I think that that's one of the things that leads doctors down the, the wrong path because the patients want to establish some causality for their problem. You kind of uh, uh, embrace that, and the next thing you know, you're not willing to look at non-musculoskeletal causes of back pain. Let me uh, let me jump in one other thing here. Um, it's almost like we don't send people to school anymore for things like blurry vision. Blurry vision isn't a medical term. I want to hear him describe that because if you're involving the blood supply, which comes off the basilar artery that is going back to, to the occipital lobes, there's a very specific way that shows up. If it's anterior circulation problem, then you tend to have hemianopsias and these sorts of things. If it's posterior, they get a sense, and not so much that they can't focus. It's almost like you shove their head underwater and they see bubbles. I've never seen when I've asked that question that where the patient didn't say, you know, it was more like that than it was something else. It's a very rare situation when you've got neck pain and blurry vision, quote unquote, both sides, that that's not a blood supply in the posterior fossa. Now, I don't know exactly where it is yet, but if you're going to do things to people, order tests, that sort of stuff, order the right test, for God's sakes, and not the wrong test, a plain uh, if you think this is a vascular supply question, order the correct study. 
Well, he doesn't think it's a vascular supply question. This guy has latched on to some uh, anxiety diagnosis. He's focused on that. He has no idea of the neuroanatomy that you're talking about here for crying out loud or anterior posterior. He's not even thinking of that. I mean, you know that getting a CT of somebody's head is not going to help you if you think they have the most subtle of neurologic problems and they're going away now. What, what do you expect to find? A big frickin' uh, Goomba up there? Well, I don't know what, but they got one, Rick. What they didn't get was if you're interested in the vascular supply, if you're going to get a CT, get a CTA uh, and, and, and not a plain CT. And tell them to focus on the vertebral arteries because those are in the posterior. Hey, don't jump the gun here, Chief. Well, all I can tell you is the carotids cover a totally different area of the of the brain than the vertebrals and it we should we should at least teach that much neuroanatomy in guys who practice emergency medicine i mean where do you think these things come in nobody goes to their doctor's office with this that just doesn't happen so I'm glad you brought that up. That's certainly one of the things in our differential. And Rick, you were saying that doctor wasn't thinking about it. I always have this expression, you know, if it's not in your differential, it'll never be in your diagnosis, right? Absolutely. And so, <laughs> so you talked about the fact that a unilateral, unilateral neck pain, he also had this uncoordinated thing going on, not just the blurred vision. So he had a couple different neurologic complaints that were occurring. And so... That's certainly one consideration. Now, of course, look, this guy's a 46-year-old man. He had neck pain and diaphoresis. You know, cardiac etiology would be one possibility. The guy could, with his neck pain, I mean, this is, would be a very unlikely presentation of meningitis, but certainly you could have some neck symptoms with that. And then even something simple like some sort of torticollis that could be going on, um, maybe even a pulmonary process, some sort of pneumothorax or a mass or something that's radiating up to the head. So, I mean, there are a lot of bad things as well as some not as bad things that certainly could be occurring with this guy. And you're exactly right. I mean, number two and number three on the diagnosis list were stress-related anxiety reaction and situational stress at work. So why don't we yeah, take before a minute we go and there, talk about this anxiety part? Come, come on. We don't have to go looking at weird disease in this guy. It, you don't have to. What you do have to do is examine those parts of the body involved. I mean, did somebody actually record his visual acuity, which is a nickel-dime test? Did they actually look to see if he had uh, strange nystagmus? Uh, which may be related to cranial nerves three, four, and six, did they do anything that actually looked at his complaints? I don't even see where they did finger-to-nose testing, rapid alternating movements, heel-to-shin testing, the standard stuff you do if somebody said, my limbs were incoordinated. Coordination of the limbs comes out of your cerebellum. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that needs to be part of, I mean, 
again, I'm that big history and physical guy also, you need to have a standard neuro exam that covers the cerebellum. I mean, what could be more important part of your neuro exam? I mean, if the guy's already altered, you know, or he can't move his left arm and leg, I mean, this could be pretty obvious. Yeah. That's the part of the exam that could be subtle that you need to check for. I'm not a crazy guy. I don't think if you come in with uh, an ectopic pregnancy and vaginal bleeding, you've got to do two-point discrimination on a patient. That's just a bunch of crap but you at least ought to examine the systems which are involved in the complaint. Hello, sudden onset of pain in my neck and blurry vision and incoordination of my hands. That sounds like the brain to me. Name another organ which is going <laughs> to do that. I don't know another organ. Well, I think the other thing here is that um, when something comes on suddenly, suddenly, uh, there are not very many things that come on suddenly. You're not talking about any gradual um, uh, process coming on here, like it's a, a, a an infection or 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 the like. This is a mechanical event. Whether there's a mechanical event, generally these mechanical events are going to be some kind of vascular thing when you're talking about uh, his kind of situation. I think, unfortunately, that this physician really wasn't focusing there. And the fact of the matter is, and Greg, you've talked about this before, if you come in and you see somebody walking normally, uh, talking normally, moving all their extremities normally, you have performed pretty much a very good neurologic exam. Yes, did you put it all down on paper? Did you do all these things? No, you didn't. But you watched you watched the cerebellum work because you saw them walk per perfectly well. So that there are, we put this into our human computer. And once we determine that this person is acting normally uh, in terms of mechanically, then we then we go down and put this bullshit uh, exam down of symmetrical motor and normal sensation cranial two to twelve normal gait normal. And that's kind of like the rubber stamp of a non non focused neurologic exam. Okay. Yes, yeah, so that's the question. Did they actually truthfully put? an exam down or was it one of these they just sort of looked at the guy and said everything was fine i i usually write cranial nerves three to twelve um because you're right if they don't check visual acuity um unless i'm remembering it incorrectly here because i haven't really put two to twelve in so long but you know just putting that broad exam down there it doesn't necessarily accurately reflect what they did and obviously we'll never know what actually occurred at bedside but i want to get to something that rick brought up before about the cat scan of the brain and i've made a little list here of serious neurological problems that could be occurring with the normal cat scan of the brain so we think we're so great we order this cat scan we can see the brain we get all this information well when you think about things that we wouldn't find out about that we need to find out about and still have a normal CAT scan, you know, bacterial or other types of meningitis, acute angle closure glaucoma can certainly account for headaches. And you could have a patient who has some sort of dissection or occlusion of one of the neck vessels, carbon monoxide toxicity. And then, you know, within the first six hours, you know, Perry will say that we're going to get 100% of people on head CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage. So you can agree with that or not. But over six hours, we probably don't have the reliability to look at head CT either. So when you're thinking about a lot of really serious bad things, <laughs> bad players that could be going on, and you could still have a normal CT, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. By the way, you realize if he had... Uh 
my uh, multiple sclerosis. A plain CT doesn't necessarily tell you that. Uh, it comes on uh, in in warm weather uh, and often involves cranial nerves, uh, motor coordination, that sorts of things. I don't know, but we ought to understand the fact that, uh, yeah, the MRI will pick up plaques come and on, things Greg, like come that. Come on, Multiple but, sclerosis, please. Yeah, he was driving down the second. street. And multiple he got sclerosis, excuse me, multiple excuse sclerosis me? is more commonly seen than this disease. Because we're going to talk about the the what, what this disease actually means shortly. You know, I think the idea that a factory worker uh, pulls over his car and calls nine one one basically says there's probably something very serious going on here. I agree with that. Yeah, that that's a big big red flag. So let me ask you before we do reveal the diagnosis, I've got a couple other issues that I want to discuss. And this was a very curious statement that was recorded in the chart under the medical decision-making section. They say, quote, patient prefers to go home and follow up with his doctor. There's got to be something wrong with you if you don't prefer to go home. Well, so except for those people who are genuinely scared and um, there is that subset, and it always makes you nervous because uh, they may be telling you something that you really don't want to ignore. Yes, or you don't understand. Exactly. And they're right, and you're wrong, <laughs> which I've had happen. Uh, they were right. They were sicker than we than uh, we thought they were at that moment in time. Um, it, it, you don't know what that shared decision-making really was. Uh, obviously they're both going to have a view of it and I'm willing to bet the family says this, if they'd only told me what the possibilities were, we would of course have stayed. And then the doc's going to say, well, I gave him the choice, you know, of how we were going to look at this. I, I think to some extent, that's a bunch of crap. People come to me for my opinion and if my opinion is you're staying, that's what happens. You know, we really don't have a debate about it. So that's what it sort of seems like to me with this statement. They say patient prefers to go home and follow up with his doctor. It sort of seems like the emergency physician recommended that they be admitted, and the patients say, no, I prefer to go home. So, you know, Greg, you're the, the you know, obviously legal expert on this is, What's a better way? I mean, one way you sort of just said is to, to specifically describe this conversation. And of course, in a chart like this, this would have been key to have a more accurate and specific description of that conversation that occurred. But yeah. what, what do you think about this? Like, do you think this doctor just sort of offered, oh, you can stay if you want? I mean, who, who does that? Oh, yeah, if you yeah. want to stay, you can. If not, you don't have to. It's like, I don't have any opinion on it. It's like, I, th- I really think patient, we we have an obligation as docs to explain to them, this is what we know, this is what we don't. I can't answer this question now. I don't want you driving. This guy pulled his car over because he couldn't control his car. What are you going to do, let him go to work tomorrow? I, I mean, the big picture, Rick is right. We got a guy, married, two kids, works in a factory, pays his taxes, you know, all that sort of stuff, who's never had anything like this before, 
that bothers me. I, it, it, it troubles me. But uh, now, I'm not saying that if he got admitted to the hospital, he'd have had any different outcome. And we'll talk about that. Uh, but it, you certainly have, it's certainly when you play this as a morality play in, 20, in front of 12 citizens picked from the uh, voters' rolls in the county, uh, it doesn't play well in Chillicothe. <laughs> so before we move, because I want to, I want to have a little bit further discussion on this whole balance with the anxiety thing, and you know maybe this case is just a framework to have that discussion because, as the listener I'm sure realizes by now, this was not just anxiety. Um, but um, but before we do that, I just want to really just nail you guys down just a little bit on this patient prefers to go home thing, because again, you know it seems to me that legally if we are recommending the patient to be admitted and he decides to go home, we should be putting some of those things that we put on for, you know, AMA for informed refusal, I, you know, signing the paper is the least of it, but you know, that is a good idea too, but we should put some of those things on the chart. Like if you don't stay, these are the things that could happen to you. Well, in the last 10 years, Mike, uh, Rick and I have beaten this issue to death with our listeners. They know the five parts right. of, uh, of, of against medical advice. See, emergency doctors never get in trouble for getting permission. <clears throat> it's informed refusal, which is the problem. So if somebody's refusing, I got to write down patient oriented, alert, understands the conversation. I explained to him the alternatives. You could die. You could do this. You could do that. I had the family there. They listened to the discussion. And despite my best efforts, they decided to go home. Although in this case, this guy has done a very comprehensive, un, a pretty unfocused workup. Yes. And, and, and he doesn't really have a good sense of what the real diagnosis is. So now the patient says, I'm fine. Uh, and maybe he is fine. Maybe all of the symptoms have cleared that. You know, I think that, I think that that's probably true. He's got all of this negative lab work and, and, and imaging. The patient says, I'm fine. Says, a patient says, I prefer to go home. What are you going to do? And the fact of the matter is, is, that's, is that I think that gets into the category of all patients who are no longer symptomatic all the lab tests are uh, everything's normal. What are they going to say? I would prefer to go home. You've seen that happen with chest pain patients all the time. All the time. Yep. But, yep. So let's this, say, let, let, let's change this just slightly to say he came in uh, while he was driving. One arm and one leg went weak, and now he's okay. An anterior circulation TIA. Almost all those people. Um, have normal exams when you see them in the department. What you know is if you present with a TIA, classic TIA, your chances of stroking out, if you read Johnson's study from Kaiser, you got a, about a 7 to 8% chance in the next week of having a stroke. So, I mean, I mean, you can't go on the fact that they're totally normal at this moment and say that they don't have disease, you can't let them, you can't let the patient believe that because that's not true. 
But in this doctor's defense, that was not the case, and and the uh, constellation of symptoms did not necessarily point to something that was a clear cut. Oh, I know what this is, or could be, could uh, be. or this ca- this could have been a, t- a TA. I think this poor doctor just kind of, you know, there's a combination of things here uh, that led to a a, a misdiagnosis, and 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 I will certainly agree that in this case the outcome. Didn't, that didn't change the outcome, and Probably I think didn't. that's reflected in uh, the, how this case comes out. But let's get more specifically into it, Mike. But let, yeah. let me um, let me give you Rick a scenario, and I'll, I'll tell you even before I get your your opinion, I'll, I'll commit myself just in case uh, you disagree. So uh, <laughs> I will be honest about it. I have a forty six year old patient come in. Now, not this guy, but forty six year old patient come in. They're breathing fifty times a minute. And they've got generalized paresthesias. And they say to me, I have a history of panic attacks. This is exactly how they occur. I have some chest pain with it. I'm going to do my due diligence asking them, you know, is the chest pain exertional? Does it radiate to the back? Is it pleuritic? I'm going to, you know, maybe review their past record. You know, 15 minutes later, that patient does breathe in a brown paper bag. They're totally asymptomatic. In my practice, with that patient with the history of panic attack, and I've established that this is typical for them, I'm not doing any testing. I mean, maybe an EKG, but I mean, I'm not really doing any more testing on that patient. Now, now this is not the scenario that we presented here today, but what are your thoughts on this balance between, you know, over-testing? What, what are some things that we can hang our hat on, some ways that we can differentiate anxiety from organic disease? Um, well, I think in the scenario that you just outlined, what you would do is absolutely perfectly reasonable. Thank God you said that. The, I mean, the, (laughs) the person is basically coming in saying, I've had this before. This is just like I had it before, but I feel very uh, upset and anxious. And can you help me out? So really what they're looking at is something that will resolve their symptoms. They, they, they know the diagnosis. In Detroit, they come in and say, I've had a gunshot like this, wound like this before. I've had them six or eight times. They've sent me home. I would assume, Mike, that in your hyperventilation case, his examination was normal and his pulse ox was 99 mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. all those sorts of things. I mean, the two cases are not really analogous. And he uh, not, did not have a sudden onset of unilateral neck pain. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So I've made a little list here, and then uh, why don't I just read this real quickly, uh, and then we can uh, get the diagnosis and talk about that a little bit here. Um, but so here are a few ways to help differentiate functional versus organic causes of symptoms. Um, and the thing that really played out, and you guys obviously keyed in on this too, is this is this guy's first visit with anxiety. So at the age of 46, and this is number two, um, only about 15% of patients over the age of 40 will develop anxiety. So it's a pretty unusual timeline for this guy to present with anxiety at the age of 46. And we know the provider thought, I didn't actually share this part, but the, the patient was prescribed Ativan. So it, it was very clear that that was what the provider thought was going on with this patient. Um, the third part of this differentiation is that atypical anxiety complaints, you know, and the patient didn't have all of these, but you know, paralysis, ataxia, clumsiness, 
unilateral weakness, visual field cuts, diplopia, incontinence. I mean, these are pretty unusual things to have when you present with anxiety. And this guy did have the blurred vision and that sensation of clumsiness. So there are three things right there. And I'll just repeat them again real quickly. First episode, um, age over 40 with the initial presentation, and then these unusual anxiety things. Those are three ways that, at least with this patient, we would have had a red flag saying, this probably is an anxiety. Well, the other part about this is I don't really think that this would be necessarily uh, anxiety. I think a more uh, exacting term would be this was some kind of a panic attack. And panic attacks, we do know that they recur, that that um, but this this is going to be your first, and you're going to have all of these other uh, and the and these others. You know, I, I have seen people who have had panic attacks, and they do hyperventilate, and they do start getting uh, numb and weak, and but they but they they don't have unilateral neck pain in the process. <laughs> but but I think that this would be more if you want to put a psychiatric diagnosis on this. I would probably put suspected panic attack, um, but. In either case, uh, that would have been a wrong diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, what I think it was is you don't have enough information to make that diagnosis either. You're right. You and I all had patients <clears throat> who we saw over 20 years and 30 years. We all did. But those were people who had been through the process, had seen people, had had testing, had come back. Uh, this is not that patient. You know, although uh, I have, I had a 25-year-old Hispanic gardener, no insurance, um, who was riding down the freeway uh, and basically developed a uh, what appeared to be a true cut panic attack. Goes to the emergency departments where he gets this uh, evaluation, which obviously he could not afford, and. Um, that's what it was. And he had, over the years that he and I were together, he had several more of them. I mean, they were they were inexplicable. They would come up relatively quickly, you know, driving down the freeway. What precipitated them was not always clear at all what precipitated them. This is not a slam dunk, oh, oh this is what it is kind of thing. No, no, it's not. More than that, Rick, I thought you were going to say uh, it was really an odd case. It was a 25-year-old Hispanic gardener who had insurance, and I was going to say that's a reportable case. But I, 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 you know, and if he had anxiety before, oh my God, Trump's president. I mean, now he's really going to have anxiety. Uh, so I mean, what can I tell you? Uh, are these cases there? Yeah, but as the first time, I want to be careful putting that label oh. on anybody. Good Lord, yes. So I'll tell you guys, um, I think we've sort of uh, gone through this and, and uh, armchair quarterback this guy to death here, um, uh, but probably deservedly so. Uh, so let me tell you what happens to the guy. So he is discharged from the emergency department. Um, Steve, that's the patient, leaves his car on the side of the road, drives home with his wife, Lauren. Uh, they plan to get up early so Lauren can drop him off at the ED so he can pick up his car and he can drive to work. Um uh, but unfortunately, uh, with the 5 a.m. alarm tone, uh, she rolls over, um, tries to wake up her husband, but he is not able to be aroused. 
she, throughout her panic, uh, she, she dials 911. Uh, the paramedics arrive and take Steve, who is breathing. He's alive, but he's just not able to respond. They take him to the closest hospital, a small rural emergency department about 30 minutes from their home. They arrive there at 6.03 a.m. His vital signs are completely normal. Unfortunately, his extremities are flaccid. He can open his eyes, but he's unable to speak. They do another brain CT, and they find it is, again, normal, and then make a decision to transport to the tertiary care center. Uh, he's intubated prior to transport. Uh, they fly him there, and this is the same ED where the patient was originally seen. So if you think you're anxious as a patient, you can imagine the doctor <laughs> seeing, seeing a patient who left their ED less than 24 hours previous. He's seen by vascular, neurology, cardiology, and advanced imaging reveals a, Greg, you got it, left vertebral artery dissection with a brainstem infarct, and there is no flow in the right vertebral artery. Uh, they put in a G-tube, a trach, and his final diagnosis is quadriplegia secondary to brainstem infarct, left vertebral artery dissection <clears throat> with a non-patent right vertebral artery. So basically, he had unilateral flow with the vertebral arteries, and then when that left one dissected, he had no flow at all. So unfortunately, he went to an ECF with ventilator support and uh, just a horrible outcome. It's a horrible outcome. Let me let me tell you the uh, uh, just for some science. Ten percent of people have a vestigial vertebral artery. The vertebral arteries are tortuous. They're tiny. You ca you basically can't work on them. And uh, the uh, the syndrome described here is a variant form of locked in, which. Uh, for those of you who are educated, remember it was called the Count of Monte Cristo syndrome. And if you're really educated, you know the person who had the syndrome in, in Dumont's book was Monsieur de Villefort-Nautier, who was described as the corpse with living eyes. And here's the secret. If you examine these patients... Because the third nerve also supplies part of the eyelids, they stay. They can stay up. The patient cannot look side to side because the sixth cranial nerves are always involved because of the way they're fed. The third nerves are still supported. So if you see a patient like this, ask them to look up. If they can look up and not side to side, <clears throat> You have a locked-in syndrome, and I cannot think of a torture I could give someone. I don't know someone I hate enough to give a locked-in syndrome to because their brain still functions. Uh, it's just they can't control any aspect of their body. Locked, locked in. Uh, you know, I, I haven't heard, well, actually, I have heard of that, but I've also heard of locked out. Locked out. Isn't that what Marjane does to you with some frequency, Greg? That, that happens on weekends, yes. yes. <laughs> the, the, the locked you, out syndrome. Yeah, the locked out It reminds out me syndrome. of an old blues song. Uh, my baby <laughs> gone done changed the lock on the door. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, the, the problem with this disease is, um, and I've been associated with a couple which had to do with a crazy uh, uh, chiropractor who was twisting people's necks. And he happened to find two of those people 
who were who who had vestigial carotid or uh, vertebral arteries on one side, and he kinked the good vertebral artery, and they lost all motor tone right in in his shop in his wow. office, and were brought into the emergency department. But I would say this: this is rare disease. I mean. Go go look up, put it put in these findings, and see how many people you've seen at, at your hospital with this in the last ten years. It's going to be vanishing, vanishingly small. Well, that's why we're talking about this, so that our colleagues do not miss this extraordinarily serious condition, despite the fact that you could do nothing about it anyway. And by, yeah, and by the way, there is no data, there is no study that says giving these people, even if they'd known what he had, does giving them heparin change the outcome? Answer, we don't know. Uh, nobody has done a study looking at giving them a thrombolytic and seeing if that works. And anybody who says, well, he could have gotten thrombolytics, you're an idiot. You, There is no data that suggests that works. And talk to a neurosurgeon. When's the last time he operated? This isn't the carotid. This is an artery which is one hundredth the size of that. When's the last time they operated on a vertebral artery in your shop? I mean, it's pretty rare. Well, I'd make a contention, Greg, that you don't have to have made this rare diagnosis. What you just needed to have done is recognize the potential seriousness of this patient's condition. And I'm not saying also just, you know, to speak to Rick's point that we would have necessarily changed the guy's outcome. However, I'm sure I speak for all three of us when I say we would have wished that the patient would have been admitted and seen by a neurologist mm -hmm. and all those things, instead of the guy having his terminal event occur in his bed at home with his wife, it would have been way better if that would have happened in a hospital. That's so even though it wouldn't have changed the situation with this guy, there are certainly other patients who might have had some sort of TIA that they would have been admitted for, and their outcome might have been changed with that. If, well, you, have a, if you have a vertebral artery lesion like this, um, <clears throat> Yahweh doesn't like you. He's sending you a negative message. Would I have liked to seen him admitted? Yes, for political reasons. This is a wonderful family. I'm sure she was fabulous on the stand. He's got two kids to support. You're going to get sympathy in this case. And all of a sudden, the science is going to dissipate. You're going to have an emergency doctor who feels like shit because he missed it. You're going to have everybody feeling bad. You're going to have to come up and do something. Somebody's going to have to take care of this guy. And that's the state, the this, the that. But as I say, it, the only message I would send if I had this was kill me now. Well, Greg, you know, um, this did turn into legal action, and you talked about being on the stand. So let's talk about that part of things now. We'll move forward. And they actually had some allegations. The plaintiff did. Uh, there are four, failure to admit, failure to obtain consultation or transfer, failure to recognize possible TIA or stroke and evolution, and failure, interestingly, 
based on our discussion of the data gathering, the history and physical and testing that was done, failure to perform a complete diagnostic evaluation that would have identified the dissection. Now, all of us are sitting here thinking like, oh, it wouldn't have made any difference anyway. Um, but again, that doesn't really matter because they do, those, those uh, allegations do have some validity. So let me tell you, um, here are what the different players said about these allegations. So um, here's what the emergency department physician said, and then we can have a little discussion on each of those. So the emergency, dis the emergency physician said the patient was observed for over three hours in the emergency department. He'd had a very stressful event with his employer at work, which he unfortunately failed to document in the medical record. Uh, the symptoms were best explained by stress and an anxiety re reaction. His tests were all normal. He had no signs or symptoms of a stroke or a TIA while in the ED. And because of these things, he did not feel that there was a need for admission. What do you guys think? Is that a viable defense of his care? I, I mean, it's not unreasonable for him to say that. Uh, obviously, there'd been some discussion with the patient and the wife about uh, bringing him into the hospital. But I'll go back to the point I, I made the first time, and that is, as much as we love this guy, as much as he's a pillar of the community, as, the, as much as we'd like to be his neighbor and friend, knowing everything, you see, all those allegations don't have the four parts of negligence in them. Duty, breach, harm done, and the proximate cause. This is a, this is a defense of, you know what, maybe we didn't do it perfectly, but in the best of hands, in the best of centers, with the best of neurologists, this is what would have happened. I think that that is reflected in uh, what we're going to find out was the payout. Yeah, I, I agree. But, but um, uh, you know, Greg, you, you know, you are the guy who is quoted as saying if it's a standards defense or a causation defense, you always want to go with the standards because you don't of really course. want to say, you know, I screwed up, but me to die anyway, you know? Well, <laughs> the best but in defense, this, right? Mike, in this case, you know, it wasn't brilliant medical care. In this case, if he'd had Raymond Adams, chairman of neurology at Harvard for many years, standing next to his bedside, he would have had the same outcome. And I think we need to, before we take this emergency doc out and, and you know, whip him, you know, pillar him, uh, I think we, we need to understand that if any of us had been there, same result. Um, so, so you're do, saying Raymond Adams? Yeah. I, I mean, if you had took the best neurologist I know and had him work on this guy, are you going to turn a different outcome? I know what the plaintiff's job is. He's to make this guy look like he got the bum's rush and he's a wonderful person and now look at him. The defense job is to say, we still like the guy. We thought we were doing the right thing. And there was a disease here, which no one has the answer for. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that we'd all like to have the answer. We just don't. 
Right. So, so Rick, uh, I sort of know the answer to this question here, but, um, you know, one of your family members is cared for by this emergency physician and uh, sent home with Ativan prescription. W- what are you thinking when they call you the next morning and tell you what happened? Uh, you can't do that. That's that's not exactly um, that's not exactly how it works. It's um, not kosher, Mike. It's not kosher. Okay, right, fair uh, enough. Right, exactly. Is this a matter of seeking revenge um, <laughs> or justice? Well, right, I mean, right. uh, who was it? Were they? Oh, I just heard a testimony a, a day or two ago about. Um, oh yeah. You know they 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 uh, are about to do all of these uh, mur- um, executions in uh, what state is it? They're like Georgia? ten of them lined up before Tennessee, the Valium right. expires. You know, yeah. right. Arkansas. You, you don't want to give them something Arkansas, with expired right. Valium. You know, you don't want to kill them with that. You got to be. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, we didn't have these problems when we when we used firing squads. We didn't. Well, you know, I guess to run for office, Greg. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, well. If, if your problem <laughs> is it may go wrong. See, I think a bigger problem is should we be killing people? But if you're if you've decided to do it, at least do it right. Oh, you know, they used, they used to have eight guys <laughs> with deer rifles and one of them, one of them wasn't didn't have a bullet in it. So you never knew whether you were the guy who killed them. What a kind heart this guy is, you know, what a, what a, what a mensch. Uh, so well, the point I was getting at is you can't ask a uh, legislator who's got to deal with, uh, you know, sentencing re- uh, regulations and the like, what would you do if your wife was raped? You, you can't do that. Um, that's Fair not. Enough. And so it's, it's, it's a kind of a dirty trick, Michael. Like, dirty like Air trick. Force One, right? You guys are with Harrison Ford, you know, and he's got the guy's daughter there and, uh, you know, yeah, he, he is incapacitated from his ability as president at that time. And so, uh, yeah, you're right. That, that's an un, unfair question. Uh, question, I, I'm going to withdraw that question. Like an <laughs> Thank attorney, you very right? much. <laughs> the, the jury, you never heard that question. It, right, right. right. <laughs> Forget yeah. it. Although the die is cast. Okay, so that was the first part. Um, that, that was what the ED physician said at deposition. Here's what the patient's spouse said, uh, speaking of family member, at deposition. She said she and her husband knew something was wrong because he never asked for help. The fact that he pulled over while driving and called 911 was evidence that something out of the ordinary had occurred. She was scared to take him home as they lived 90 minutes away from the hospital. And then, understandably, she described how the loss of her husband impacted her family and her children. Greg, what do you think? A pretty typical uh, deposition from the spouse? Well, you know, if I gave that closing argument um, four weeks before Christmas and I had the two kids in their Christmas oh, outfits, God. Oh, God. I'd, rip, I'd rip that jury to shreds. But that's a parlor trick. That's an emotional trick. We practice something called a science, or at least it begins to be a science. There are mistakes made here, but uh, this this closing is a plaintiff's dream. I yeah. mean, it's a plaintiff's dream. 
So here's how the defense expert, uh, this is the expert hired by the defense physician, the, by the defense attorney who is, who's defending the, the emergency physician. He, here's what he had to say, he or she had to say about the case. It was a really tough case. Uh, he said that it's very easy in hindsight to say what should have been done during the first ED visit. Unfortunately, the patient presented after a profound event while driving rather than listening to his wife or taking into consideration the rural location and difficult access to further medical care, the ED physician chose to attribute the event to social stress and anxiety. If the patient had been admitted, um, he most likely would have had the same outcome, just like we're all saying here. Wouldn't but was this guy, was this doctor uh, negligent? Did he do uh, a uh, history and physical and lab and CT and um, did he try to clear this person of as many organic problems as he could? Uh, would this diagnosis have been picked up by the usual and customary emergency doctor? Um, and well, what and then, there's is, the, yeah. then there's that neurosurgeon who said we couldn't have done anything anyway. So maybe if you combine those, all of that together, you can get a jury to say, I think I understand. Yeah, they may understand or they may not, but they're still going to want to give them something, or they may give them something. Well, they something. did. They gave them something. Well, uh, that was a settlement, Rick. That was not a jury award. Is that correct, Mike? Yeah, so so I was going to say, you know, I think we all agree that there's some argument that could occur <clears throat> as to whether this was standard of care, but I'm guessing that we would all agree this was not excellence in care. Um, now, I'll tell you what happened with the patient um, uh, and with the, the settlement. Um, the case uh, was after the wife gave her deposition. And I'm Greg, I do not know the proximity to Christmas of which this occurred. Um, however, um, it was a powerful deposition. Um, just after that, they, uh, they settled the case. Um, and it was settled for uh, a large ish amount, but certainly not an amount that would have really how much been, it was between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollars. That's chicken shit. Yeah. That's nothing. So yeah, when I you would... think of raising two kids, you know, I mean if this guy was making <clears throat> fifty, sixty a year, man, after like two to four years, they're back to where they started. Well worse than that, just the cost of maintaining him on a ventilator someplace um, see, the problem is a lot of the body still works, uh, and, and, and the fact that they could keep them, this isn't Karen Ann Quinlan, you know, this isn't a uh, chicken soup for brain case. Uh, you've got to, uh, you've got, you've got to look at this guy as the, the saddest person in the world. I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish this on Kim Jong-un at this point in time. Although the fact is, is that between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollar out of court settlement is nominal. Um, it's nominal, nominal. Yeah. and um, I think it reflects the <laughs> fact that um, I think it I think it largely reflects the fact that um, I think that I think what I just said is was operant that he did a lot of stuff. Yes, he did. He didn't really nail the diagnosis, and because he didn't nail, nail the diagnosis, and the person was perfectly well, uh, he sent him home. 
and this outcome that did occur was immutable. So when you add all of that together, it may be between one and two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I probably misspoke before when I was saying that after two to four years, the guy makes that amount. Greg, what did the actual wife get out of that? Probably forty percent, right? Well, understand the the first the first thirty thirty percent, thirty three and a third percent went to who? The attorney, her attorney. attorney. Yeah, yeah. A- and you what know he- what? That attorney probably had damn near that in costs at that point in time. It's not that big an amount of money. A Pyrrhic uh, victory. Yeah, this is a Pyrrhic mm. victory. I mean, Rick yeah. is exactly right. And, and um, you know, you can't afford too many victories like this. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a tough one for everybody. Um, you know, hey guys, we are, we are kind of coming to the end of our time here. We have about, according to the clock on the wall here, about uh, a, a solid 10 minutes left. How can we best use this time now that we have Mike as a ca- captor here for another couple of minutes? Well, one, one thing for sure, Mike, we can't do another case. Well, listen, yes. you're planning right. on doing. Yeah. Mike, you have, you brought us two cases, and I really like the second case as well. Could we uh, perhaps, where you in well, now that you're in a position where you can't say no unless we have to edit it out, <laughs> can we can we have you back and do uh, case number two in the uh, in the near future? I'd love to. Yeah, that would be that would be awesome. If you want, um, uh, with the time, unless Greg wants to talk about wine for nine minutes um <laughs> i <laughs> i could give you guys a uh top 10 list of how to uh of what to do with a bounce back patient or oh, sure. we could talk about some other type of case you know a couple different options with things you know what that that sounds so important i don't think we can get it in in nine minutes but well, we I can't be having you talk about wine for nine minutes either. No, I know that. <laughs> How about some stories of us drinking wine? We could Wait, we could talk about drinking we, wine and about wine. We could do that. And uh, and uh, Rick, you realize we will in two nights be enjoying some wine in New Orleans. We have a wonderful crowd of people showing up for uh, for the uh, EMA course, and it should be a great time for everyone. Hey, listen. But yes, but I want to take your advantage of these last eight minutes. So listen, why don't you go down the list and we'll, we'll get five. to where we can. Right. Uh, uh, Michael, if you would. And we'll, and we'll do as many as we can. Okay. All right. That sounds good. I will do that. And uh, you tell me when to stop because we, we certainly don't want to uh, uh, get in the way there. Some of these I'll shorten. Um, uh, number 10, uh, thank the patient for returning. You know, I, I, am not quoting myself, but they're giving us an <laughs> opportunity to get it right. I'm not sure who said that. Maybe it was one of you guys. Yeah, uh, yes, but, but so, yes. that's the first thing. So they're not annoying. To get it right. Right. Um, second thing is making sure that the question that they're asking when they come back is something that we're going to address. And it's pretty easy to miss this, but you know, when a 17-year-old girl comes in with left lower quadrant pain and she's been amenorrheic for the last two months, she's asking us a question. In her mind, it might be, how can I get rid of this pain? But in our mind, as physicians, it is, do I have an ectopic pregnancy? So we have to make sure that we understand the question before we can begin to answer the question. <clears throat> and by Number, the way, yes, yeah. And by the way, I I think that a lot of times parents come in, 
and they can be very demanding about this or that, and they think that's going to solve the problem. Sometimes asking them a question like, why do you think we ought to do this test or that test or whatever it is actually quite useful because they think we that these tests tell us more than they actually do. And I found that all the time. Once I found out what they wanted for real, things went a lot smoother uh, because, because quite frankly, our tests are not as good as they think they are. Well, you know, reassurance is part of healing. So understating their concern, even if it's unreasonable, and reassuring them that that's not going on, that's that's a part of healing. It's not all just, you know, that, I say it's sort of facetiously, but that sexy through the windshield, 50 feet down the highway kind of patient. But we see plenty of patients who have very real concern that we can reassure and heal them in that way. So um, top 10 list number eight, this is a quick one. It's sitting down when you take their history. Um, Mel Herbert said he wants to take it to the next level, that he's going to lay down on the patient's floor while he's taking the history. That will really make them feel like you spent a lot of time in the room, but not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, not in a good way. Exactly right. But sitting down and maybe even telling them that. I wanted to come in and sit down and make sure that we get it right this time. You know, some scripting like that, mm -hmm. that's good. That's good. So You know, these are the things we were telling people 40 years ago. They're the exact same things, you know, why we're still talking about it, because they don't do it. And it's so basic to any service industry. It's unbelievable. The guy who's selling you a used car sits down. You can, too. Uh, number seven here. Uh, this is a four-parter. Um, reviewing the documentation from the previous visit. So the, the visit that prompted the bounce back visit, looking for four things, symptoms that weren't evaluated, abnormal findings that weren't addressed, the accuracy of that initial diagnosis, and then the appropriateness of the treatment. So, you know, you got to get back into what happened initially to get some context on what's going on currently. Number six, performing a fresh evaluation that doesn't have to be a complete head to toe, whatever, whatever, but just making sure that we're not misled by a common term, Pat Crossgary, um, the bias diagnosis momentum. And uh, we always say the most serious impediment to a current diagnosis may be a previous diagnosis. So they taught us that Ohio State always to discount anything, even if it was the head of neurology at Harvard, to discount that previous diagnosis and make sure that we look at things with fresh eyes. Yes, uh, ab absolutely. Um, I did hear a closing argument from a plaintiff's counsel, which talked about the train kept a rolling. And he actually gave a very interesting closing about the momentum of this train and the way he presented it. And he said, nobody had the courage to stick out their foot and try and stop the train. And, and he was actually quite good at giving the uh the closing argument i was i was impressed when i heard it bounce back tip number four is to make sure that all the documented complaints are evaluated and that includes the documented complaints by the nurse i haven't figured out a better way with a multiple complaint patient to evaluate them except to evaluate each of those complaints and some of them might be 
two-pronged. You ask about fever, you could find the shortness of breath and the headache. You're checking for meningitis or pneumonia. So just because they have a bunch of complaints doesn't mean it's you know four separate evaluations. But you got to have at least some evaluation of each of those complaints looking for the potential life-threatening things that might cause them. Um, not doing that is at your own peril. Number yeah, I, I, I frequently had patients who, if we came up with three or four things, I'd say, these two we can work on tonight. These two I'm going to send off in the report to your doctor. I mean, these have obviously been around for 20 years or something like that. But what you did was you recognized, you gave credence and credibility to their statement. And a lot of times they're looking for that credibility that some healthcare professional has taken it seriously. And they understand that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, number four, after the history is taken, summarize to the patient what they told you. And I tell residents this all the time. It's like, why don't you, before you leave the room, summarize it to the patient for 45 seconds. It tells the patient that you heard them. It gives you an opportunity to ask additional questions. And number three, it lets you practice it once before you present it to me. So well, the other thing is that... Really um, with the scribe in the room, that's the way the scribe was going to get the uh, uh, edited version of the what the patient said. You're going to summarize it. Now, let me get this straight. You said that 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 that, that that's what the scribe is starting to take down. Um, we yeah. got uh, we have uh, two minutes. All right, I'm going to talk super fast. Number three, addressing concerns with the patient and the family. Did I get all the information that I need? And do you have any questions I could answer? So giving them an opportunity for that. Um, number two, making sure that our aftercare instructions, and I'll, I'll paraphrase Greg here, are action and time specific. And then finally, putting a medical decision-making note in. Um, we don't want to practice defensible medicine. We don't want to practice defensive medicine, but we want to evaluate and document in a way that is defensible. So there you go, top 10 list. So the, we don't have to buy the books now? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> totally. We no, got no. it. You know, yeah. <laughs> save yeah. some money. You can buy hey, wine. Listen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I do want to thank you for your participation. In case what this gets edited in such a way that we trim off Greg's wine, at least I want to thank you very much, uh, Michael, for your for your it's participation in preparing here. this case. Better it's they cut my heart out than the wine. Listen, you got one minute for wine, Chief. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's one <clears throat> I want to point out that Kendall Jackson has purchased several different levels of wineries in California. They have one now called uh, Verite, V-E-R-I-T-E. This is as good a wine as exists in the world. The wine, the spectator and the wine advocate both agree with this. It is so much cheaper than Screaming Eagle, which is down the street. That's 850 bucks a bottle. This stuff is at reasonable prices, and they're giving it great uh, numbers. Kendall Jackson is still, <clears throat> when you see that label, those people make damn good wine, and this highest level of theirs, this Verite, um, you ought to try it, and you can afford to try it. Um, go out and buy a bottle of this and uh, drink it with your friends. It's great. Hey, guys, thanks so much for uh, taking your time on this. Your words of wisdom, Gregory, as always. And, uh, Michael, uh, you provide a fresh insight that we uh, pr 
periodically need to hear. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, guys.